Hello, it's Friday, February the 11th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... I'm talking to the champion runner Paula Radcliffe about why half-term next week is a great time for kids to get outside and start doing some exercise. We're talking about the latest in the cat kicker at West Ham United. And nearly two years since the first COVID restrictions were introduced, from today, testing measures for fully vaccinated travellers arriving in the UK have been removed. But still, it's not enough, say the aviation industry. Could we face peak hours electricity rationing? But first, she's finally going after huge pressure. Cressida Dick, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, the first woman commissioner, has announced she's resigning after the London Mayor Sadiq Khan effectively said he had no confidence in her leadership. Why did it take him so long? So the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick finally bowed to the inevitable and has announced her resignation. She said she had no choice after the London Mayor Sadiq Khan effectively made it clear he'd lost confidence in her leadership. She'd faced mounting pressure amid a series of scandals including the murder of Sarah Everard by one of her officers and the report last week which found quotes disgraceful misogyny, discrimination, racism and a list of other sins among some Metropolitan Police officers at Charing Cross Station. Joining me now is Norman Brennan, who is a former Met police officer and a campaigner on issues of law and order. Norman, did she have to go? And are you surprised she lasted as long as she did? Well, did she have to go? Um, well, I suppose the buck stops at the top. Um, I think the pressure was so much so that um, I don't think anybody in her position or any other position, and I think Boris Johnson at this moment of time is a similar position where the pressure gets so much that you just say enough is enough because you actually become the story. And when you become the story, then all the issues that are concerning you and the concerning the uh, organization you head um, get put to one side and that can never be right and that can never happen. So uh, it was inevitable that she would go. Uh, but I'll be quite honest with you, it's, uh, it's quite a sad day for many people that actually know uh, the goodness that she's actually done. Do you think there were positives to her, her, her time in charge? Uh, absolutely. I mean, being the Metropolitan Police Commissioner is what we call within policing the poison chalice. You are pulled from so many directions. There are people that want so much from you that you almost become a politician. Every move you make is like playing political chess. If I make this move, will it upset this organization? If I make that move, it'll upset somebody else. So you're often in an impossible situation. But she was very well liked by rank and file. Um, and I was one of the, I'm very fortunate to have quite a high media profile. And I was one of the uh, few that uh, didn't jump on the bandwagon. And I'm not uh, dancing on her grave today. I think it's a sad day. But um, as I said, she became the story. And there are so many issues that weren't really her fault. Sadly, it was frontline officers that uh, sadly had committed some appalling crimes and behaved absolutely disgracefully that she is the boss, so she's fallen on her sword. And um, it, as far as I'm concerned, and certainly the Met Police, uh, it's, it's a sad day. But for others, uh, I'm sure they're quite pleased. What for the next commissioner, uh, Norman, what do they need to be able to do perhaps better than Cressida Dick? Well, I don't know if they are going to do any better. The reason why Cressida Dick was given an extension by the Home Secretary of a further two years is because there was no person of such high calibre that could take on the role. So what does the next commissioner need to do? Well, what they really need to do, if I was the commissioner, 
is I would call in all of my supervisory ranks, sergeants and inspectors, and I will ask them this, is your obsession with promotion overriding your ability to run your shifts? Because if it is, the Metropolitan Police is not the job for you, but the majority of them, I would ensure that supervisors, supervisors, leaders lead, and I would personally get out on the streets of London probably for the next six to nine months, and I would defend the Met. I will tell the public what we are doing, and I will also remind the public we're not a perfect organisation. We make mistakes. But what I would do, which is what I'm afraid the Mets are not good at, is I would deal with crisis management. Crisis management is admitting your wrongs, admitting, admitting errors, but then reminding the public of the great work that the majority of the police service do, and then I would address the crisis management by standing in front of my officers and taking the flak. That's what the boss has to do, and that's what a new boss has to do. Will they do that, or will they just be a political pawn? Sadly, I think it'll be the latter. Just finally, Norman, Brennan, is there an obvious candidate to take over from Cressida Dick, do you think? I suppose if I look around the country, and uh, I've been in policing for 43 years now, uh, there's Nick Adderley, which is the, he's the chief constable of Northamptonshire. I don't think he'll move because he's very popular up there. He's a very good officer. I think he's ex-Northumbria uh, and uh, PSNI. Then uh, there is a, a word on the street that Sir Hugh Ord, I think he was the ex-PSNI, he is someone that takes absolutely no nonsense. But the sad reality is, does the establishment want someone that's prepared to stand up to them or do they want a poodle? The sad reality is it's the latter, but we certainly need someone that is strong in character, strong in nature, and is prepared to stand up and defend his staff when they get it right and also admit when they've got it wrong and reassure the public victims that we will do the best for them on every occasion, but we are human beings. And sometimes when we're, inf we're not infallible, we make mistakes. Hopefully they will be in the few, but sadly there's been a few too many just recently, which I'm afraid has cost Cressida a job. Very interesting. That's Norman Brennan, who is, of course, a former Metropolitan Police Officer and campaigner on issues of law and order. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. We all know we're facing huge increases in our electric and gas bills in the coming months, but could we even now face the threat of peak hours rationing? New planned time-of-use tariffs will allow prices to change throughout the day in response to supply and demand. It could see some customers forced to limit their power use at peak hours when, in fact, they need it most. Joe Malinowski is the founder of the energyshop.com and he joins me now. Joe, this if there is rationing, it takes me back to my childhood when we had the three-day week and the lights were out and uh, we did our homework and had our dinner by candlelight. It's not going to be that bad, is it, rationing? No, I would hope. I, well, I would hope not, and it, and it and it possibly isn't going to be forced rationing. It will be um, uh, uh, a series of um, uh, price-based incentives, either to cut demand, either paying you. In this particular case, we've got a trial that's going to be taking place between Octopus and National Grid to try and look at you know, how people respond when they're given incentives to cut usage, um, uh, through to. Um, uh, uh, people autom potentially automatically getting cut off 
because they've set limits on what they're prepared to pay uh, for units of gas and electricity. So these, this is all where this is all hypothetical at this present moment in time. But when you get to a situation where we are going to be loading up the grid um, with lots of uh, new demand, for example, electric vehicle charging uh, yeah, being quite. the obvious one, um, then you um, uh, then you need and, and at the same time a lot of the old. Um, uh, coal stations and uh, more polluting stations to be taken offline. You you can foresee situations where you are going to be hitting the limits uh, of available um, supply, and then the part of the, part of the reasons of the the smart meter rollout is to better understand what people are actually using real time, and then be able to offer people products and prices that incentivise uh, uh, people either cutting back or um, uh, or indeed getting cut off. Will these these time of use tariffs, Joe? Will they only work if you've got a smart meter? Yes, uh, absolutely. Because um, uh, at the present moment in time, uh, dumb meters, uh, for example, they just spin around, um, and you need somebody to knock on the door to uh, take a take a reading or take a reading yourself. Uh, you don't necessarily, you don't you won't know when you've used it. Um, so you need to for time of use tariffs, you need to be able to record the time periods in which the energy is usage, so that you can actually you know reflect it in pricing. And I suppose also, if we went down this route, not only are we going to save energy, we're going to save money. And I think Ofgem is saying it could save a, a, quite a lot of money for customers. It potentially could save quite a lot of money for customers if the benefits are fully passed on to customers. I mean, the primary beneficiaries of um, uh, knowing what your energy usage is, in, in the first instance, uh, obviously, it's, uh, it helps customers with, if you have a smart meter because you get more accurate reading. So you, you, you can uh, uh, re- uh, reflect your usage in your billing. Um, uh, obviously, that saves um, also um, meter reading costs for the energy company. But the energy company gets better usage of you know, what the demand profile is for its um, for its uh, for its customers it doesn't it can hedge more effectively uh, the question then becomes whether it passes it on so certainly it's a benefit on uh, for the um, for the supply side of the industry uh, but going forwards um, given the uh, number of um, devices that are continue to get plugged into the electricity grid uh, it starts to become essential that you have more real-time information to know how you're going to balance it particularly when you're playing around Sorry, playing around is not right, but, um, but particularly when you're um, uh, trying to make decisions on big multi-billion dollar investments in what is going to create that supply uh, and where it's going to come from. And how quickly, um, Joe, will these time of use tariffs come in? I mean, are they imminent? Oh no! I think we we are a very long way down the uh, down, down the, uh, the the road on this one. Uh, this uh, trial that's um, that's happening with National Grid and Octopus is really just to try and even understand and gather data. Um, we only have at the present moment in time uh, we're only halfway, not even halfway through the smart meter installation program, uh, and there's 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 got to be a lot of testing um, and a lot of understanding um, how this um, uh, how consumers uh, can respond. So at the present moment in time, you know it's. You know, if you have a smart meter, you'll have a monitor. The monitor will give you some indication of your usage, but the, but the cost is not accurate. I mean, I've got a smart meter, and it's telling me I'm paying 12p per kilowatt hour. I'm not. I'm not paying anywhere close to that. And come the next price cap, you know, it's it's more than double that. So, um, but there's a, there's a lot of new services that have to come in terms of the way consumers get to better understand that. And the industry, I don't think, is largely at this point in time, with certain exceptions even set up to be able to, uh, to offer these products, um, let alone operate them at their end. So we're a few years down the line yet, but the critical point being, um, uh, uh, we need to catch up very, very, very quickly because the load on the system is growing all the time.
Just finally, Joe, um, we know the energy caps, the price caps. Uh, we know what happens when the energy cap is is lifted. We're going to be facing huge bills. Some of us might be in fixed term contracts, which as they come to an end, what should we do? Should we shop around or do we just all stay put? What's your advice? Well, you can't really shop around at the present moment in time. And although there are some offers in the market, I would uh, stay well clear of them for the time being. Uh, the, the reasons for this are as follows. The current price cap, the, the one before the big increase, is easily the best deal you can get at the present moment in time. And while you are still using uh, the largest amount of energy uh, of the year because we're still in the winter period, you want to be paying the lowest possible prices. And secondly, the, the available offers at the moment still represent not just exceedingly poor value compared to the current cap, they're also not great value or actually poor value compared to the new one. So there's absolutely no reason to be doing anything at this point in time. However, given that the new cap is coming in and the suppliers do have some certainty about the outlook, um, there is, um, uh, we think, uh, where we're a bit more confident that we will get uh, a, some return of the competitive market in the coming weeks and months. And at that point, that will be the time to be able to reassess the position. But for now, stay put, do nothing. Um, and we'll come back and let you know um, as things uh, as things change. Very good advice. That's Joe Malinowski, who's founder of the energyshop.com. So visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So almost two years since those first COVID restrictions were introduced, the government has finally announced from today all testing measures for fully vaccinated travellers arriving in the UK will be removed. It means international travel will return to almost near normality for the fully vaccinated. Joining me now is Paul Charles, who's chief executive of the PC agency, who's been leading the campaign to get our flights and air travel back to normal. Paul, are we back to normal or is it nearly back to normal? We're actually still a long way from normal, Andrew. Uh, the number of flights departing the UK for overseas is down 42% next week compared with two years ago at the same time just before the pandemic began. So it's far from normal. And whilst it's very encouraging that the government have finally done away with these testing restrictions, there's still a long way to go before there's full recovery. Is it still um, is is the number of flights still so low, Paul? Is it is it because people are just nervous about travelling, despite the fact um, the Omicron variant is fading in 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 terms of how damaging it is to our health? There are still some nerves among travellers. The confidence has not been fully rebuilt, and it's going to take some time to do that. I think the government are clearly heading in the right direction by removing restrictions. But there's still a passenger locator form, which is a faff to fill in before you come back to the UK. And people are nervous. So the government's got to do a lot more yet to build that confidence so as to enable the airlines to put more flights back. And, and they need a global marketing campaign to show that Britain is truly open for business. It's the inbound tourism market that is not anywhere back to where it was and that is why the numbers are still way down compared with two years ago boris johnson in uh, in the in prime in in the comments at primes's questions this week paul announced that um within a couple of weeks we're going to end the period of, for isolation if you're tested positive for covid will that be a big step in in bringing confidence back to the travel market and encouraging visitors to come here I think that the UK has 
actually done a lot of damage through its various policies in terms of how attractive it looks. It's great to hear the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps say that Britain is now open for business. And I suppose it is, apart from the passenger locator form, especially if you're fully jabbed. But overseas, it's going to take a lot more to convince people that Britain is truly open. All they've heard about is government putting restrictions in, moving them around, having traffic light systems that were complex. And so it's going to take some time before the confidence is rebuilt among businesses overseas and tourists who, frankly, are looking at Britain at the moment and going, well, it's still a little bit complicated. There's uncertainty. I'd rather stay in Europe. And of course, many of our visitors come from Europe. So, no, I'm sad to say it's going to take some time yet. It's not as simple as just removing the day two restrictions. So finally, Paul, does the government need to actually have a a marketing campaign overseas to point out that we are effectively going to be one of the most liberated countries in Europe and one of the first to lift a lot of these restrictions? Would that make a difference? I think there are two things the government needs to do. Yes, one is an international marketing campaign to show people that Britain is open, that it's not that difficult to come here after all. But they can only do that after the second thing, and that is removing the passenger locator form. Why does the government need to know exactly which uh, flight you were on coming into the UK? Why does it need to know where you got your vaccination? Frankly, we're moving on from these tough COVID onerous regulations. We need to be going back to how things were pre-pandemic. It's seamless travel. That's what makes people travel. So the government's got a lot more it could do in the short term to really boost confidence. And only when they've done those two things will you start to see the numbers back over 100% of what they were two years ago. Absolutely fascinating. Do you think they're going to do it, Paul? I'm confident they will. I think the passenger locator form will disappear before the end of March. That would be a major step forward. And then they can do the international marketing campaign, which is so badly needed, and which the government first talked about about 18 months ago in one of its task forces. We know government moves slowly, but let's hope they can speed up the uh, chances of the campaign beginning. Let's hope indeed. That's Paul Charles, who's chief executive of the PC agency. That time of the podcast when we talk sport with Matt Gatwood, who is the deputy sports editor. Uh, Matt, will he or won't he play? Kurt Zuma, that horrible footballer who kicked his cat and has been fined two weeks' wages, a miserly £250,000. Yes, well, as it stands, we think he will. West Ham and, and David Moyes, the manager, are, um, are digging their heels in over this one, and um, they feel that um, they've they find him, you know, as you say, two weeks' wages, um, uh, £250,000, and uh, they feel that they're free to, to pick him to play, against, um, to play against Leicester on Sunday, which is their next game. And obviously, you know, the decision that they made in midweek when they had a game that, was, um, that, that came immediately after the video of Zuma kicking the cat came to light, they almost panicked and just thought, well, we've got to play him. Um, uh, because they hadn't really, I think, realised the strength of feeling against the video. But what's more amazing, I think, is that now they've had a chance to sort of almost take a breath and see how furious people are about what's happened. They're still intent on playing him. So it does seem very strange that they wouldn't um, 
you know, try to diffuse the situation really by taking him out of the out of the spotlight and certainly out of the team. But they seem intent on on playing him. And I thought Moyes' uh, reaction the other night when he said, "Well, he's one of my better players," kind of missed the point somewhat. It did somewhat, yeah. He's such a good player, but he should keep. He should kick. Just stick to kicking footballs, Matt. Not kicking cats. Now, Arsenal. You must be pleased as an Arsenal fan. They actually won last night. <laughs> yes, they did. They won. They got their first win of the year, um, and in quite extraordinary circumstances to a degree, because they they were one nil up at, at Wolves, uh, who've been on a very good run, um, and Arsenal went one nil up, and they were in control of the game really, and then. Uh, yet again, Arsenal suffered a red card. Now, that's the fourth red card they've had uh, this year. Um, and as you know, you know, there's not been that many games. So to have, they've actually had four red cards and only scored two goals. So they've got twice as many red cards as goals. And last night was extraordinary, even by Arsenal standards. Gabriel Martinelli, their Brazilian winger, managed to get two yellow cards within six seconds of each other to get himself sent off. So... Um, quite extraordinary how Arsenal keep sort of shooting themselves in the foot. But at least last night, uh, they came through it and managed to get the three points, which puts them in a good position still in this uh, in this race for fourth, which is very interesting. And um, especially it was a good week for Arsenal with Tottenham losing and uh, Manchester United dropping points as well. So they're in a good position in fourth, but they've got to stop getting all these players sent off, otherwise it's going to catch up with them. And finally, Matt, it's rugby uh, this weekend. We've got to beat Italy. We will beat Italy, but we need to win big, don't we? Well, they need to put on a show, really, after last week and the disappointment of losing to Scotland. They need to put on a show. They need to score lots of tries. They need to beat them heavily. But also, it will be fascinating to see at what point does Eddie Jones take Marcus Smith off. Obviously, he's been heavily criticised all through the week for taking Marcus Smith off when England were beating Scotland last weekend. He has this habit and this fascination with his finishers or substitutes, as you and I would call them, or replacements. He calls them his finishers as they come on and finish the game. Well, now maybe he'll let uh, Marcus Smith finish this game and let him go all the way through to the to the full-time whistle. But whatever he does will come under a lot of scrutiny uh, after what happened last weekend. So, yeah, they need to find a good performance. They need to win and win well. And hopefully, if they're playing well and Smith is playing well, Eddie might actually lead him on to see out the game. Fascinating stuff. You'll be glued to it, of course, Matt, won't you? I certainly will, just like you. No, I'm relying on your blow-by-blow uh, uh, account of the match to tell me all about it. When is the match? Is it tomorrow? Yeah, no, well, actually, England is on Sunday. There's a massive game tomorrow, which is uh, France v Ireland, and the winner of that, you would have thought, will determine who wins the whole thing, who who wins the uh, the Six Nations title. So that's the first one. You, you can watch that on Saturday and then tee yourself right. up to watch the one on Sunday, uh, which is England, Italy and Rome. I'm getting my hair cut. <laughs> Get fair enough. <laughs> That's Matt Gatwood, Deputy Sports Editor. So after two years of lockdown and wretched social distancing, children, as a result, have become less fit, less healthy and even less active. Now, next week is half term for many schools across the country and the champion long distance runner and Olympian Paula Radcliffe is hoping that with some motivation and a bit of help from technology, that parents will be able to get their kids off the sofa, off their iPads and get them outside, keeping them healthy safe and active paula radcliffe joins me now paula um i imagine when you were young uh exercise uh running keeping fit was hugely important for you um yeah i think it was more to be honest something that i just enjoyed doing i i loved 
um, just playing out with my friends. I loved the feeling um, when I was running and when I was racing. Um, and, and so it became a natural part of, of my life. And I think that's the, the key thing at the moment is the danger for, for kids that essentially have their physical activity levels and access slashed during the lockdowns um, so they weren't able to, to get out and to be physically active and once it stops being a habit and a daily process and it's hard to get back into it and to reintroduce it so I think that's my concern is, is the impact on kids of having that loss in physical activity because uh, I, as you said I'm really well aware of how important physical activity is for kids and what a great grounding it gives you in terms of performing at school and physical and mental health um, and then just growing up to, to interact better with other people. Now, you're championing the X5 Play. Now, that's a smartwatch which will enable parents to know the whereabouts of their children. Uh, it also, Absolutely. I think, it, you, if you can explain, it also will motivate children to stay active. So how does it work, Paula? So it's basically, it's your kid's first smartwatch. So it's available in e-stores from today. Um, and it then has a SIM card in it. So, but it's uh, a smartwatch strapped to the child's wrist, controlled from the parent's phone. So you program in the numbers that they're able to call them, that they're able to receive calls and messages from. And you get a notification every time they make a call or receive a call. Um, plus you can track where they are at all times. Um, so you can see their GPS location, their history of where they have been. Uh, you can set a school mode so it won't interfere with any of their um, school time. They will only be able to see the time during school. Um, but the minute they come out, it will become active again. So they can call you to let you know that they're walking home on their own and you have that reassurance to see that, that they're safe. Um, and then the main thing for the physical activity is that it tracks their step counters. So even when it's in uh-huh. school mode, it's still tracking their steps. So they're running around the playground, they're adding up. I will guarantee they will trash the parents hands down every time in the amount of running around that they will do during the day. And then that translates to X coins, which they will then go and spend in the GoPlay store, which opens on a Friday afternoon after school finishes. And they can go out and essentially get prizes, buy themselves prizes with how much they've been physically active really clever isn't it uh, and particularly they've thought this all through doing it friday afternoon after school finishes yeah how many steps i and i always make sure i do ten thousand a day paula do you have a is there a parents listening to this will be thinking how many steps should my child be doing what should a 13 year old child how many steps sh- should they be doing oh, every wow. day that is a really good question i don't know my son is 11 and he is most often above eighteen thousand steps a day um, and uh, at a weekend, he will be well into the 20,000s. Um, I did uh, a fun workout with some kids at the track on, on Wednesday night at Blackheath and Bromley um, Athletics Club. Uh, and we ran around for about an hour and a half. And those kids were up in that time, most of them to five, 6,000 steps. So I guess, yeah, if you're looking yeah. at around 10, but I think the main thing is that kids are naturally competitive too. So if, if they're so. competing with their parents, if they're competing with their peers to see who gets the most steps, that's a great way to get them more running around, being more active um, without kind of pushing them to actually be training at that age. We shouldn't really be about that. It should be about moving and having fun. And now you're, you're, people know you're a famous champion runner, Paula. Do you still uh, run every day or most days of the week? Yeah, I do. Um, I run, I mean, if I'm really busy or traveling, I can't fit it in. It's not the end of the world now. But um, I like to get out for a run every day if I can. It 
even if it's only a short one, so it might only be half an hour, I'm just going to catch up with friends while I'm running, or it might just be that I want to have some time to myself and just not have to talk to anyone or deal with anything. I just want to kind of just run around along and just enjoy the scenery. I just find it on that X5 play. Where do people, if people want to buy one, where do they get them from? So you can find out all about it on the Explorer website. It is X. Uh, P-L-O-R-A um, or you can go into your local EE store and they are carrying the X5 play there so they will talk you through it they'll talk you through how to set it up on your phone um, and get you all ready to go with a reliable SIM card that means that wherever your child decides to wander off to <laughs> you can keep tabs on them Paula Radcliffe the champion runner talking about how kids can keep fit and also get rewarded for it at the same time thanks for joining us well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back with you on Monday. Have yourselves a very good weekend and good night. Mm-hmm.